Okay, good evening everybody at home and in person. So our topic for tonight will be Nazi propagandists. We're going to focus on the work of Joseph Goebbels and Julius Streicher. So last time um, we discussed the reasons why anti-Semitism in Germany were on the rise in the early Weimar period, all the unpleasantness that was happening in German society after their loss in war, and how the early Nazi uh, figures and Hitler rose to the, to the top of the ranks pretty quickly in the early 1920s in the Nazi party, were able to take advantage of that sentiment to build a base of support, certainly not a majority of the populace, but they had their, their base, which would grow in times of economic difficulty and shrink in times of economic prosperity. But uh, the Depression, starting in 1929 and entering into 1932, led to the populace being willing to vote for radicalized parties. And the Nazi party did very well for itself in the late 1932 election. Hitler was able to convince uh, von Hindenburg to make him the chancellor. And January 30th, 1933, Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany. The, uh, the Weimar Republic, as a republic, a constitutional republic, doesn't die the day Hitler takes office, but it dies shortly thereafter uh, through the Enabling Act of March 23rd. The Enabling Act basically meant that the Reichstag was no longer relevant and that the executive could make all the laws out of the chancellery, and that meant that opposition parties were irrelevant and eventually they would be outlawed and it would be a one-party state with the Nazi party. Um, what I want to focus on tonight, discussing propaganda, is this question. In the pre-war years, between 33 and 39, a series of laws were enacted which reduced the space, both, both physical and metaphysical space for Jews in German society, making life intolerable such that people would want to leave if they could get out. Uh, this is a precursor to an exterminationist policy that will happen during the war. But how is it that the German population is willing to accept this, uh, these series of laws, and then eventually a, po a policy of, of death and destruction, given that just a decade or two or three earlier, for whatever anti-Semitism might have existed in Germany, it wasn't of this variety, of this intensity or willingness to commit such violence. I mean, Jews at one point or another uh, in the pre-1939 uh, phase of the Nazi regime, came to recognize that, well, German Jews had not been emancipated for hundreds of years. And it was only in the 18, 1871 with the unification of the Reich that Jews are fully emancipated. So it lasts six decades or seven decades, and easy come, easy go. We'll go back to being second-class citizens like we were for time, from time immemorial. It takes a certain chachma to realize, well, it's actually going to be worse than that, and our lives are in danger. So that's the Jewish mindset, but the Gentile mindset of a willingness to allow for such severe uh, treatment of Jews, that can only happen if they're primed for it with a, a heavy dose of propaganda that makes the Jews seem like the devil. And such propaganda will exist in very strong doses throughout the uh, period of 33 through 39, and even before 33. Didn't they feel economically threatened by the Jews? You were, had tough times. You said yes, absolutely. Tough times make uh, uh, the, uh, any citizen 
interested in finding some other category of person to say, well, it's your fault why times are so bad, and if only we persecute you, times will get better. Yes, that, that's absolutely the case. But let's try to figure out tonight what was being said about the Jew that would make their persecution very palatable to the average German. Okay, so first let's go through the series of laws. After the Enabling Act was passed on March 23rd of 33, so then you have the law for the restoration of the professional civil service in April of 33, which kicked the Jews out of government work. Uh, and government work is a fairly wide category of employment. Then there was the law against the overcrowding of German schools and universities, passed on April 25th, 1933, which capped Jewish enrollment in any of these schools at 1.25%, which might not sound so terrible given the percentage of the Jews in the overall population, but let's face it, Jews like to go to school. And if, if not for numerous clauses laws, Jews would be 20, 30% of the university. Um, then the law concerning the admission of uh, to the legal profession, Jews that can no longer enter the bar, then, citizenship and denaturalization law of, January, of July 14th of 1933 basically stripped 150,000 former Austrian and Eastern European Jews who had made their way to Germany and somehow wrangled citizenship for themselves into non-citizens. Then, the hereditary farm law of September of 33 basically outlawed Jewish farming. This is not necessarily going to be a law that affects so, so many people, because how many Jewish farmers were there? But in Bavaria, in the southern Germanic regions, there were Jews who lived in the rural areas and lived on the farm. And this means they're out. They got to be, uh, you know, packed into the cities. This is the beginning of ghettoization, basically. Then 1935, things get much more intense with the Nuremberg Laws. The citizenship law meant that only racial Germans and not Jews, who cannot be Aryan by definition, are citizens. So, of course, you're going to have to have supplemental decrees to the Nuremberg Laws clarifying who is a Jew and who is not a Jew. Uh, you know, there's eight, eight-eighths Jewish, seven-eighths Jewish, six-eighths Jewish, one-eighth Jewish, and no-eighth Jewish. Uh, every step along the way, uh, the, the, the extra great-grandparent you had who was a Jew makes you more in line for persecution and less in line for legal protection. But most importantly of the 1935 Nuremberg Laws was the law for the defense of German blood and honor which outlawed extramarital relations between Jews and Gentiles, uh, prohibited future uh, Jewish-Aryan intermarriage, but did not retroactively outlaw the existing marriages. That would have been too difficult. Ultimately, those Jewish spouses would get sent to Bergen-Belsen or, or wherever, um, sometimes Dachau, but at least in thirty-five, if there was an intermarriage, and there were plenty of them, there were thousands of them, the Jew wasn't going anywhere, and that couldn't be uh, wiped away. And also, German females under the age of 45 could not work as domestic servants in Jewish homes. We're going to get to some of the propaganda literature that explains why that should be the case. The, the sexual advances of the Jewish male were seen to be so uh, extreme that you couldn't trust any Aryan woman uh, in, in a Jewish house. Then in 1938, laws pick up in intensity. Jews can't own private gardens. Jews are forbidden to change their names. Jews can't own guns. Jews are banned from health spas. They have to add Sarah or Israel to their names and on their passports. Jewish-owned businesses are closed after Kristallnacht on November 23rd, 1938. Jews are expelled from all public schools on November 15th, 1938. And in 1939, in February, uh, all jewelry is expropriated, basically legal theft of uh, Jewish property. So all this stuff is happening by decree, by the law of the Third Reich. 
And there isn't that much of a tumult about it, other than in the rare instance when someone of mixed blood is caught up in what was supposed to be only the disparagement or the, or, or the disenfranchisement of Jews. Then you'll have a little bit of an outcry. Oh, why should I be included with them? I'm one of you. Okay. Well, propaganda. So Hitler said, the chief function of propaganda is to convince the masses whose slowness of understanding needs to be given time in order that they may absorb information. And only constant repetition will finally succeed in imprinting an idea on their mind. The slogan must, of course, be illustrated in many ways and from several angles. But in the end, one must always return to the assertion of the same formula. The one will be rewarded by the surprising and almost incredible results that such a personal policy secures. So basically, you're telling one massive lie, but in a variety of ways. Uh, and if you do it, if you do it a, bu- a diff- bunch of ways and repeatedly, you will find success in winning over the hearts and minds of a gullible public. Did he originate this concept? No, not really, but, he's, but his, his henchmen are perfecting. So before we get to Goebbels, let's discuss Streicher. Uh, Str- Julius Streicher was born in 1885, uh, was executed in 1946 after the Nuremberg trials, is the first one to be executed, was a member of the Nazi party, was the Galater, which means the regional leader of Franconia, and was a member of the Reichstag, and he was most famous as the founder and publisher of the Stürmer, uh, the Storm. Uh, and it was the leading propagandistic anti-Semitic paper in Germany from 1924 until the end of the war in 1945. It was a very successful enterprise, and Streicher became a multimillionaire courtesy of uh, the sales of his newspaper. Uh, and as I mentioned, after the war, he was executed uh, by the Allied powers for incitement to genocide. Not not that he killed anybody personally, but incitement to genocide. uh, And his death was actually pretty gruesome because um, he was killed by hanging and they they fouled up, or maybe on purpose, maybe by accident. There was insufficient space in the box when he fell down, in the hole in the ground, in in, in the floor. And so he, he banged into something which jostled the noose. So it was out of place and didn't kill him right away. And he convulsed for like 20 minutes. So it was a pretty bad uh, uh, incident. Now, Streicher also is famous for making his anti-Semitic uh, comment at the, at the gallows, referencing Purim. And, uh, you know, he was f- familiar with J- Jewish themes of being an adversary of the anti-Semite. In other words, the, the Jew versus Amalek. Purimspiel, yeah. Okay, so Streicher was um, a bit of an oddball, and there were times when he was so over the top that even the Nazis themselves wanted him to cool it. There were moments when the Nazi party preferred to look more presentable. Uh, I mentioned last week, I'd like to discuss today, some of the times when the Nazis held back from their worst excesses. So when it comes to the application of anti-Semitic legislation to the Jews of Germany, one of the important things early on was if you were a World War I veteran who had been a decorated war hero, it got you out of certain of the, the, the worst aspects of the discrimination, at least for a little while. In the end, most people you know, in that boat still you know, face the worst consequences, but for a little while in the 30s, if you were a World War I veteran, that made you somewhat safer. Also, 
1936, there was a desire to seem less objectionable in honor of the Olympics, that the Germans had to put on a good show for the Western, you know, the Western democratic states. And that meant curtailing anti-Semitic propaganda, at least briefly. Um, the issue of the Mischling, of people of mixed blood, caused the Nazi party, the regime, to hold back sometimes in not persecuting to the extreme people they really would have wanted to, but it was indelicate to do so. And, of course, even during the war, there were issues of trying to fool the Red Cross, uh, Theresienstadt. There were issues at the end of the war of people not wanting to get caught and prosecuted for war crimes, and so therefore either letting people go or destroying evidence. At every stage of the way, there may be some reason to hold back from the worst excesses. Streicher was like just over the top all the time. And that got him into trouble. But he had Hitler's support all the way through, personal loyalty of Hitler, because Streicher had been on the front line in the Beer Hall Putsch of 1923. You know, uh, in Munich, when they, when they attacked, okay, they, they stormed the barricades because Streicher was right next to Hitler and was willing to sacrifice himself in the cause so that meant that for the next 20 years, Hitler was basically loyal to Streicher, even though he was a, he was a bit b- b- buffoonish. Okay, so Streicher published Der Sturmer, which had uh, which was published and then put in these uh, glass cases in the public sphere, so that even if you didn't buy a copy of the paper, you could read it in the town square. Uh, like you know, La uh, Havdil, you have. In America, sometimes you have uh, the newspapers that they put out, like the New York Post, you know, Mets win, Yankees lose, that sort of thing in the case, just so you know what happened. So they would put the Sturmer also in the case, people would read it. But the cover often would say, uh, like, uh, National Enquirer type headlines, like all sorts of bizarre stuff, and have pictures, semi-pornographic pictures of Jews lusting after Aryans and doing all sorts of nefarious things. One of the things that Streicher did was publish children's books. And I want to spend most of tonight looking at a particular children's book, uh, Der Giftpilz, which means the toadstool or the poison mushroom, in which children were indoctrinated to believe that the Jews were a danger to them, to the Aryan child, and to, to the Aryan society at large in a variety of ways. So for those of you who are listening to this class a week from now on YU Torah, I feel bad, you're not going to see the pictures. But for those of you who are watching at home right now, and for those of you in person, I printed out, sadly, it's not in color, it's only in black and white, but you'll get the gist of it. So the cover of the book was a picture of a poisonous mushroom with a Jew uh, being the mushroom. So uh, with a Jewish star, and it says the toadstool, the poison mushroom. Okay, so the first page is a mother in the forest with her child, the little Hans, okay? Hans is the boy's name, and Inga, or Elsa, uh, is the girl's name. We get to pictures with with a little girl, too. So what happens in this picture is the boy's picking a mushroom in the forest, and he's putting it in his basket. And he wants to know from his mother, can I eat this? Is this this edible, or is this going to kill me? What's happening here? So... They're in the forest, and the mother is explaining to the child that there there are good mushrooms and there are bad mushrooms, just like there are good people and there are bad people. And who are the good people? Oh, our Saryans are good people. And who are the bad people? Oh, the Jews are bad people. And the child says, of course, I know that, mother. The, The Jews, our teacher taught us about them. So here, 
the mother is, is indoctrinating the child, but the child is saying, don't worry, I already know all about this. The Rebbe in, in the Cheder taught me that the Jews are the devil. Okay? So the mother praises her boy for his intelligence and goes on to explain different kinds of poisonous Jews. There's the Jewish peddler, the Jewish cattle dealer, the kosher butcher, the Jewish doctor, the baptized Jew, and so on. And throughout the book, we're going to see each category of, dirt, of, of nefarious Jew. So the Jews are, uh, 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 they are, and they always will remain. For our folk, for our volk, they are poison, like a poisonous mushroom. Yes, my child, just a single poisonous mushroom can kill a whole family. So a solitary Jew can destroy a whole village, a whole city, an entire folk. So the, the accusation here is not just that the totality of Jewry is dangerous, but that even one Jew is dangerous. Now, if you're saying even one Jew is dangerous, then that means that a genocidal solution is the only solution, or an expulsion of every last one, not just the departure of a bunch, but that there cannot be any remaining. Nothing can remain. Okay, so the, um, the devil in human form, that's, that's the idea. Well, let's go to the next, uh, next cartoon. And that is how to tell a Jew. How do you know who's a Jew? So the kid is in school, in a German school, and he's at the chalkboard. And on the chalkboard, and he's pointing with his stick, and the, the teacher's looking on, what do we find? There's a Jewish star and a face with a big Jewish-looking nose. And it says, the number six. How can you tell a Jew? He looks like the number six in his facial features. One can most easily tell a Jew by his nose. The Jewish nose is bent at its point. It looks like a number six. We call it the Jewish six. Many Gentiles also have bent noses. But their noses bend upward, not downward. Such a nose is a hook nose or an eagle nose, but it's not like a Jewish nose. And then further physio- uh, uh, you know, questions of physiognomy. The lips. One can recognize a Jew by his lips. His lips are usually puffy. The lower lip often protrudes. Their eyes are different too. The eyelids are thicker and more fleshy than ours. The Jew looks Jew look is weary and piercing. One can tell from his eyes that he is a deceitful person. By the way, what's one of the greatest lines or scenes in the history of cinema on Jewish eyes? What movie am I talking about? Folks at home, you can write it in the chat if you uh, know the answer. The Jewish Eye, Paul Newman, Ari Ben-Kanan, Exodus. When, they, when, they, when the British officer says, I can tell a Jew, I can spot a Jew a mile away. And then Ari says, I think I have something in my eye. Can you take a look? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know he's a Jew. So here you have the, the, the Jewish nose, the Jewish lips, the Jewish eye. But there's more than that. The Jew is usually mid-sized to small. They have short legs. Their arms are very short. Bow-legged, flat-footed, low-slanting forehead, receding forehead. And many criminals look like that, too. And they could throw in the Nero looks like that. So all the, 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 the hated categories, the, the Jew, the black, the criminal, are all lumped together. Then, putting aside the physiognomy, there's the behavior. One can recognize a Jew from his movements and behavior. The Jew moves his head back and forth. Okay, he shuckles this and that. Da, da, da. His gait is shuffling and unsteady. When, the Jew moves his hands when he talks. He jabbers. So all these things were classic stereotypes of the Jew, Jewish behavior, gesticulation. And then 
each each page of the of the book ends with a poem. And this poem is like this. From a Jew's face, the wicked devil speaks to us. The devil who in every country is known as an evil plague. Would we from the Jew be free, again be cheerful and happy? Then must youth fight with us to get rid of the Jewish devil. So here the call is for school-age children to double down on their, uh, their bigotry in the name of fighting the good fight for the sake of Germany. Okay, now let's go to the next one. How the Jews came to us. Well, if the Aryans are the natives of this land, then the Jews must be foreigners. Well, where did they come from? They cannot be indigenous. If they were indigenous, we'd all look alike. We'd be of the same racial stock. So where do the Jews come from? In fact, plenty of the German Jews come from Western Europe, historically, but a whole lot of them, maybe even the preponderance of them by 1930s, come from Eastern Europe, having migrated back westward from a more hospitable Poland. Okay, so the next picture is Polish-looking Jews, pseudo-Hasidic type, old-world Jews, on the streets of a German town, where everybody else looks differently, and they have this uh, Polish-style look to them. So, how the Jews came to us. And the poem goes like this. Once they came from the East, dirty, lousy, without a scent. But in a few years, they were well-to-do. Today, they dress very well. Do not want to be Jews anymore. So keep your eyes open and make a note. Once a Jew, always a Jew. So the criticism here is that, yeah, it's true. There are Ostjuden-looking type people in Germany. But to be honest, there weren't that many of them. Okay, most German Jews at that point had acculturated to a significant degree, even the Orthodox ones, the Germanic Orthodox. And they didn't look like that. So the poem is saying, well... Jews transform themselves pretty quickly. They come as poor beggars and schnorrers from Poland. And before you know it, they're very wealthy and they look, they're dressing like us. But don't let that fool you. They're still the dirty, lousy Jew they always were. Okay. Now, then we go to classic tropes, the Talmud Yid. The Talmud Yid. Remember, Nazi propaganda is very smart. It focuses on the here and now and criticism of the Jew that is applicable specifically to the 20th century, but it also borrows from the old Martin Luther type anti-Semitism and even what predated that and is careful not to attack the church too dramatically. Maybe, Maybe the Catholic church they'll attack, but not the Protestant churches, but they're attacking old line Talmudic Judaism. And so what do we find here? Let's take a look. You have a picture of a, a yeshiva boy studying Talmud late into the night with the menorah lighting, the, uh, illuminating the room. And the Rebbe is a, a, a classic-looking Jew with the nose, with the, an appearance, a facial appearance. That to the, in, in Nazi propagandist uh, work means he looks a little devilish, and he's wearing a talus, and he's holding a, a book and a big yarmulke on his head. Okay, so... What's the problem with the Talmud? So the, uh, the, para- the chapter comes to an end like this. Murder, thievery and lies, robbery, perjury and cheating. These are all permitted for the Jews, as every Jewish child knows. In the Talmud is written what the Jews hate and what they love, what Jews think and how they live. All is ordained by the Talmud. So here you have 
Streicher putting out propaganda in the 1930s in a children's book, saying that everything the Jews do is based on the Talmud. Was that really true? For, for Jews of Central and Western Europe in the 1930s, was the Talmud their chief work to, to guide their lives? Not at all. Yes, in a, in a very old world way, in Eastern Europe, in Lithuania, Poland, parts of uh, what would become the Soviet Union, yes, the Jews live in the old world where rabbinic uh, law and law dictate every move, and the rabbis are the be-all and end-all. But in Germany, no, they were irreligious to the, to the core. All right? And yet the Talmud Jew, the Talmud is telling us everything, telling the Jew everything. And what does the Talmud say? You can rob the Goy, steal from the Goy, do everything you want to the Goy. Okay. Next chapter is why the Jews let themselves be baptized. So this addresses a very important topic. And that topic is how the Nazis would deal with Mishumadim. What is the status of a person who was racially or ethnically Jewish, but had converted out, had accepted baptism, whether in the Catholic Church or in the Lutheran Church or in any other denomination? Are they to be recognized as a Christian? as the theologians would say should be the case, or they to be recognized as a Jew, as the racialist bigots would say. So here, let's look at the picture. You have an obese Jew, all right? That's a, a common theme in this literature. The Jew is a fat schlub, okay? He's huge. And what's happening? He's coming out of church on Sunday. Here you have the, 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 the Protestant minister in the background, and the Jew with the hat and the coat, is carrying a Christian Bible with a cross on it, okay? So what's happening with this converted Jew? So the chapter ends with the following. I believe a time will come when the Christians will curse the clergy who once allowed the Jews to enter into the Christian church. For the Jews only want to destroy the Christian church, and they will destroy it if our clergy go on allowing Jews to enter. So here... Nazi propagandists are angry with the galachim, with the, with, the, with the ministers. How could you let Jews into the church? You must force the Jew to remain a Jew. Do not allow him to accept the grace of baptism. Now, this goes against 1900 years of Christian teaching that says what? That the baptism gives you, uh, you know, salvation in the hereafter. And that anybody can turn to baptism and be saved with their belief in Yashka. So here, this is the party going against church doctrine and saying that the, the, the Christian ministers are really doing us a major disservice by converting Jews. Then it says like this. If a Jew comes along wanting a priest to baptize him, be on your guard and beware. Jew remains always a Jew. Baptismal water helps not a jot. The, that does not make the Jew any better. He is a devil in time and remains so through eternity. Now, I want to show you another picture from Streicher's second book, um, which we'll get to uh, shortly, but it's the same theme. This is a funny, funny picture. Sometimes it's hard for even me when I'm looking at it to figure out what's going on right away, but I, I was able to figure it out. Here you have, again, an obese-looking person, a fat Jew in his pajamas, and you have a, 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 a Christian clergyman barging in on the guy eating his dinner. And the Christian clergyman is aghast at what the Jew is doing. What's wrong? If you look at the calendar over here, it says Freitag. It's Friday. Friday towards evening. So a Jew Friday towards evening 
is having chicken dinner. He's eating a goose. Lechavad Shabbos. A goy is supposed to eat what on Friday? Fish. 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 Okay, so this maybe this is a Catholic. All right. The point is, you're not supposed to in 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 that faith. You're not supposed to eat meat and chicken goose counts as meat on Friday. So the point is, this person took a baptism. He's fooling everybody in publicly publicly professing that he's a Christian, but in the privacy of his own home, he's following Jewish practices and scoffing at. Christian behaviors, and he gets caught doing it, and the and the, and the Galach is 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 uh, aghast at what happened. Take a look at the priest; he's overweight, also. Uh, he was only only eating kidneys. I don't know. No, no. Okay. I'm, what I'm saying <laughs> yeah. is that that could be an indirect criticism of the clergy. It could be. You're right. It could be that they're getting fat off the people. Okay. So now let's go to the next one. How a German peasant was driven from house and farm. So here you have, uh, you know, a rural part of Germany, and there are people tilling the soil, and all of a sudden comes a fat schlub again, a Jew, a bald Jew. He's, he's sweating so much that he's, he's wiping away the sweat from his bald head. Um, and what's happening? The family that had this farm is in debt up to their eyeballs and higher, and now the, the, the Jew, the banker Jew, is confiscating the real estate, the property. So this was something that occasionally would happen. Listen, Jews were in the banking business, and farmers went into debt. You have a bad season where the crop yield is poor, and all of a sudden you can't maintain the family farm. So let's see what it says. The story tells how a German peasant was driven from his land and farm by a Jewish financier who enforcing usurious interests ruins the peasants and compels them to sell his farm. The picture shows the Jew in the background enforcing the claim, while in the fore, the neighboring peasant and his young son discuss what is taking place. And now we have the, the text. Yes, says little Paul, I will always think of the saying which teacher has taught us at school. The peasant prays to the Lord. Oh, keep the hail from us. Protect us from lightning and flood. Then we shall have again good harvest. But worse than these plagues, never forget is the Jews. Be warned. Look out for the bloodthirsty Jew. So this was not something exclusive to Germany in the 30s. This already had been around when the, when the Jew was the financier for the evil parts, okay, in Poland. But even before that, medieval times, where the Jew was only into money lending and the possibility of a farmer defaulting was very real. So if you want to incite hatred of someone, you say that, the hardworking people, the tillers of the land, don't get to keep the fruit of their labor, whereas the white-collar individual, who essentially does nothing but being a paper pusher, gets to grab all the assets of, this, uh, of, the, of the nation. And that's a surefire way to arouse people's passionate hatred against the Jew. Okay, now we go to my favorite of all the pictures today, only because having grown up in, in America of the 1980s. So w- w- what do the parents tell the children? Don't take candy from strangers. Okay. So here you have the most grotesque looking Jew of them all. Again, a fat slob, uh with a hat and the, the, the thick glasses, the Coke bottle glasses. And what is he doing? He's giving candy to little uh, Elsa and Hans. Okay. So the implication is that 
this person, this adult, is ingratiating himself with Christian children for the sake of ultimately doing what? Presumably sexual molestation, all right? It's, it's not said explicitly in this picture or in this uh, particular uh, caption, but that's taken for granted, that uh, this guy's up to no good, and these kids might never, ever be heard from again. They could be killed or, or certainly uh, uh, molested. So what does the text have to say? A devil goes through the land. The Jew he is, known to us all as murderer of the peoples and polluter of the races, the terror of children in every country. He wants to ruin the youth. He wants all peoples to die, have nothing to do with a Jew. Then you'll be happy and wise. Okay, so this is uh, an accusation that's really unfounded. I mean, there's no reason to think that Jews were more likely than Gentiles to be corrupting the youth whether with candy or uh, with any molestation issues, but when you want to accuse the Jew of being very lecherous and having an unbridled libido, and an unbridled libido that is not just towards normal uh, lustful desires, but rather towards all the abhorrent and bizarre desires, well, then there you have it. Okay, the next one is Inga goes to a Jewish doctor. Inga goes to a Jewish doctor. So we're looking at little Inga. She's some kind of a teenage German girl, a virtue true. And you have, again, the fat Jewish doctor with the, with the Coke bottle glasses. And this time he has a yarmulke on his head. Okay. So Inga goes to a Jewish doctor. There were a lot of Jewish doctors, disproportionate to their percentage of the population, way, way disproportionate to this percentage of the population. And they were good doctors. And European medicine was heavily Jewish before the war. The specialists were almost all Jewish doctors. But the accusation was, just like we hate the we Goyim hate the Jews, the Jew hates the Goy. And the doctor is in a position uh, to exert great influence over a, 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 a patient who's in a compromised physical position. They could be out under anesthetics, whatever it is. And the, the Jewish doctor could be groping them in a sexual fashion or could just poison them to death or hack off a limb during a surgery that wasn't necessary. All sorts of crazy things a Jewish doctor could do, not called for medically, and potentially get away with it because the patient doesn't know any better. Okay, so let's read what it says. The devil it was he who sent the Jew doctor to Germany. Like a devil he defiles the German woman, Germany's honor. The German people, they'll not be sound, unless very soon the way is found to German healing, German ways, to German doctors in future days. So the idea here is keep the Jews out of the medical profession. Now, of course, once you have an exterminationist policy of genocide and sending Jews to the gas chambers, this is a moot point. But before any of that happens, when it's just Jews live here, but there are misfortune and we want them out of the main aspects of, of society, well, then one of the main aspects of society is healthcare, the healthcare industry. Get the Jew out of the healthcare industry and we'll all be better off, so it says. How ironic this mango. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now let's go to. Remember, I said that um, the Nazis were careful not to totally uh, uh, go against Christian doctrine. In many ways, Nazism is, is uh, anathema to traditional Christianity. It's idolatrous, it's worshipping of the Fuhrer, it's murderous. Uh, but 
Nazi propaganda realized the population of Germany and of wider Europe is Christian, likes Christian symbolism, and you can take advantage of Christian symbolism in the cause of fostering further racial anti-Semitism. So therefore, in this children's book, it's not just about the doctor who's a lecher or the fat schlub Jew who is stealing everybody's money. There is also Jesus on the cross. Okay, so we have a scene where, you know, late 19th or early 20th century looking German children are seeing a first century Judean on a cross. Okay, uh, and what is, the, what is the, the poem at the end of the chapter? It says like this, because this man knew the Jews, because he proclaimed the truth to the world, he had to die. Hence the Jews murdered him. They drove nails to his hands and feet and let him slowly bleed. In such a horrible way, the Jews took their revenge. And in a similar way, they have killed many others who had the courage to tell the truth about the Jews. Always remember these things, children. When you see the cross, think of the terrible murder of the Jew by the Jews at Golgotha. Remember the Jews are the children of the devil and human murderers. Now notice, Jesus, according to this text, what is his relationship to the Jews? He knows about them. But is he one of them? Doesn't say. Doesn't, it's, that's left out. So Jesus is not a Jew. He just knows all the dirty secrets of the Jews. And for that, they have to kill him. So there's a, a twisting of, of New Testament uh, narrative to fit a, a, a racial bias here. Okay. Then I, I'm, I didn't print the, the next picture. I should have because it was a good picture too. Um, did I print it? No, I didn't print it. Okay. The next one is how Jews treat domestic help. So one of the ways that the, the Nuremberg laws were justified, and one of the laws I mentioned was that Jews cannot have domestic help below the age of 45 because of an assumption that if the woman was young and attractive, she'd be molested by the Jewish, Jewish homeowner. So how Jews treat domestic help. German woman, great or small, the Jews call you simply Goya and not the, the, the bean company. He hates you, corrupts you, treats you worse than cattle. If a girl wants to keep herself pure, let her steer clear of the Jews. If she wants to make a good in life struggle, let her have no truck with the Jews. Now, this was a real issue because plenty of Jews were wealthy, if not upper class, at least upper middle class, and it was commonplace to have domestic help. This was, you know, your average upper middle class or even middle middle class Jewish family had some kind of domestic help. Typically, it was not a Jewess who was the help. It was a, it was a goita. But is it dangerous for the Gentile to, to be in a Jew's home? They want to convince the young, impressionable Gentiles, don't go into a Jew's home. Bad things will happen to you. Then, two Jewish lawyers. All right? So here, two kind of ugly-looking, sinister-looking Jewish lawyers each with bigger Coke bottle glasses than the other, all right, are not to be trusted. They are tricked. The, uh, the, the, German, uh, the Germans are tricked by the Jewish lawyers. What happens? The story tells how a Jewish lawyer, by making the same promises to two German women, the plaintiff and the defendant, takes a fee from both. And the court's judgment is given, both women are guilty, both must pay. In other words, the same lawyer worked for both sides and didn't tell either side he was working for both sides and took their money and ran off. So the idea is that the Jewish lawyer is a shyster. 
Okay? He's a shyster who will rip you off blind. Then, what is, uh, if, an, if an anti-Semitic regime wants to make life difficult for the ritually observant Jew, what are one of the things they could outlaw? Shrita. Bingo. Shrita. Here we go. That's the next picture. So here you have the Jews slaughtering an animal. Okay? They're slaughtering a cow. You have the big shaykhet uh, with a beard and a hat. Okay? And the workers there. So how the Jews torment animals. So a society which ultimately would kill millions of people and put people into cow cars, the decade previous to that, are saying that the Jews are the ones who are uh, lacking any compassion towards uh, sentient beings, and they're doing terrible things to the animal population. So what does it say? The accusation of ritual murder is repeated. Two boys, Kurt and Otto, go to a Jewish slaughterhouse. They hide themselves where they can watch the Jew killing a cow. The process of fixing the cow and the operation is described involving callous brutality and schadenfreude on the part of the Jewish butchers. Uh, Four Jews hold down the cow while its neck is being cut. The Jews stand stand there and laugh. And in the end, Otto says, Kurt, now I believe you. The Jews are the meanest people in the whole world. And Kurt answers, yes, there are murderous people with the same brutality and lust for the blood with which they kill animals. They would also kill human beings. So so, Shrita, they observe it. The Jews are laughing and giggling, having a fun time at the torture of the animal. Must be they would do that to anyone or anything, including people. All right. Then, if there's anything that the Jew loves more than anything else in the eyes of the anti-Semite, what is it? Money. Good. So, the bourse, okay, the treasury. Here you have a Jew sitting on a pile of gelt, geld, all right? So this is a huge sack of money. And uh, again, a, a fat Jew holding a chumash is sitting on a pile of money. Interestingly, he doesn't have glasses in this picture. He just has a hooked nose. Okay, so what's the story with the money? I'll read you the poem. The Jew has only one idea in this world. It is money, money, money. By every kind of trick and device to make himself immeasurably rich. What he cares for is scorn and contempt. Money was and is his God. Through money, he hopes to lord over us and achieve mastery of the world. So we had a lot of different themes in this book. We had Jews' love of mammon, of money the lecherous Jew, the Jew who's, uh, who torments animals and therefore will also torment people, the Jew who is dishonest, the, the nefarious doctor who will harm patients, uh, and so on and so forth. So if the children are reading this, their minds are being poisoned. The book ends with a very self-serving picture of Julius Streicher himself, the publisher, okay, in which he has his Nazi uniform on, his shaved head, in which he says, uh, without solving the Jewish question, there should be no salvation for mankind. And the, the poster says, the Juden sind unser Unglück. The Jews are our misfortune. Okay? Now, in one of the other books that he put out, um, which was t- titled The Trust No Fox on His uh, Green Heath and No Jew in His Oath, which was put out in 1936. Uh, so here, the distinction is drawn between the very strong, blonde-haired, muscular Aryan who works with his, with, with his arms and with his, with his brute strength and tills the soil, versus, on the other hand, the Jew, again, chubby, with a cigar in his mouth, 
with a pen in behind his ear, with a briefcase, with a newspaper about the stock market, with the bourse. Okay, so every last detail is designed to make him look even more uh, sinister. Okay, and here, again, the Jewish doctor, the theme of the Jewish doctor keeps coming up again and again. There's a patient on a deathbed, or maybe not his deathbed, but he gets up when he sees the Jewish doctor, because who does he see with the Jewish doctor? Who's in the corner of the picture? The devil, the, the, the angel of death, the grim, the grim reaper. So the, the Jewish doctor brings along with him the Malach Amavis. Okay? And so therefore the Goy is nervous. Fine. Well, um, Joseph Goebbels was uh, Hitler's right-hand man in many respects. And when Hitler commits suicide on April 30th, 1945, Goebbels takes over as chancellor for one day until he commits suicide on May 1st, 1945. Together with his with his wife, and they and they kill their own children, all six of their children. It was a pretty gruesome thing. Um, Goebbels was not one of the earliest Nazis. He actually had a PhD um, in literary history and wrote books and was trying to become successful as an author, but did not have much success early on in the 1920s. He becomes a Nazi in around 1924, 25, uh, and is is enthralled with Hitler as a speaker, as a, as a propagandist, but he will be Hitler's propagandist. And so he joins the cabinet on March 14th, 1933, to become the head of the newly created Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. He was the one who composed the text of Hitler's decree authorizing the boycott of Jewish businesses on April 1st, 1933. Now, that was one of the first anti-Semitic actions that the the government took, was have a one-day boycott. Ultimately, this would lead to far worse things. But in the beginning, it was unclear how a boycott of Jewish businesses would affect the economy. And so it was a test run. And Goebbels was the one who wrote the the decree. Uh, The Nazi party's goal was to remove Jews from cultural and economic life and eventually from the country altogether. Uh, In addition to his propaganda efforts, Goebbels promoted the persecution of the the Jews through pogrom legislation and other actions. So he was always on the extreme within the the, the Nazi hierarchy. There were those who wanted to take a a, a slow-go approach towards the persecution of the Jews, and there were those who wanted a more aggressive approach from the start. Goebbels was the aggressive one right away. Um, he was the Galater of, of Berlin. He was the, the, the chapter leader, the party leader in Berlin. And he introduced a lot of discriminatory legislation, including banning Jews from public transportation and requiring the Jewish shops be marked as Jewish shops. So there were measures taken in Berlin before they were taken in other parts of the country. Uh, he, Goebbels was the author, or one of the authors, probably the primary author of Hitler's most famous speech, which he gave on January 30th, 1939, um, in which the threat of world war was thrown around very openly, not for the first time, but in the most clear and menacing way. What did he say? So Goebbels wrote this for Hitler. If international finance jewelry in and outside of Europe should succeed in plunging the nations once more into a world war, then the result will not be the Bolshevization of the earth and thereby the victory of Jewry, 
but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. So this was one of the most famous pre-war comments by Hitler that European Jewry could and very well might cease to exist in a wartime experience. Then, Goebbels also wrote in 1942, in general, it can be estimated that 60% of them will have been liquidated, while only 40% can be put to work. A judgment is being carried out on the Jews, which is barbaric, though thoroughly deserved. So it was usually the case that members of the Nazi cabinet did not speak openly about the final solution. Euphemism was the way to go. Why? Well, you don't want to have any evidence, whether written or even verbal evidence. And so although millions were put to death, discussions were always in the abstract very vague. Goebbels didn't mind being direct, at least for internal consumption, not to the outside world necessarily, but for internal consumption. And what he's saying is, in the resettlement in the East, in the deportations, he assumed 60% would die and 40% would be, work, would be put to slave labor. Okay. Um, in, in the few minutes that we have left, I just want to mention more about um, methods of propaganda. So cartoons were very popular, printed cartoons, whether in book form, especially children's books, or newspaper or magazines. Der Sturmer was only one of them, but there were a bunch of uh, quite successful anti-Semitic uh, papers. Then there were posters that would be put on the walls, you know, on the windows of storefronts, films with Leni Reifenstahl, cartoons, and flyers all over Germany. But radio became an increasingly important part of anti-Semitic propaganda because radio was a new medium. People liked it. And you could say the most vile things and after 1933, get away with it with impunity and the party would encourage it. So radio was uh, effective, although the scholars find that radio was effective in fomenting anti-Semitism where it had been historically high. Where it had been low, it actually uh, was had the opposite effect, that uh, extreme anti-Semitism, where it wasn't wanted, over the radio, means of radio was a, was a turnoff. But where it was desired, it was all the better. It's like that in, in modern communications as well. You know, if you have a certain agenda and you're preaching to the choir, they're going to gobble it up, it's going to be great. If you're trying to preach to the other side of the aisle, They'll be dismissive and say, this is you know, horrific propaganda. Now, uh, the Jews were blamed for robbing the German people of their hard work and for themselves avoiding physical labor. Hitler emphasized in his propagandistic uh, speeches that Jewish Bolshevism was the antithesis to Nazism and that one would win and one would lose. This was going to be a zero-sum game. And either it's a victory of Judeo-Bolshevism or a victory for the, for the German folk, for the Nazi party and the German nation. And this conflating of Judaism, the Jewish race, with Bolshevism really wasn't true. 
And by the late 30s, the Nazis knew that it wasn't true because they knew that Stalin also was persecuting the Jews. But it was very convenient in convincing the German masses that the Jew is the enemy because the German masses had already been convinced that the Slavs are the enemy, okay, and that the, the Soviet Union is our mortal foe, just like England was a foe, but of a, of a different kind. Uh, There's no racial animus there. So the Jew equals the Russian equals our enemy. Um, Goebbels in 1937 had the great anti-Bolshevist exhibition. It's a big exhibition in Berlin and declared that Bolshevism and Judaism are one and the same. This was a successful ploy. I want to emphasize it was successful because, well, how do we know it was successful? In the sense that the Jew, nothing is holding back the German state ultimately from finishing off their genocidal plans. And where does it occur? It occurs in the Slavic lands. Yes, Jews are killed taken from Western Europe, Southern Europe, and the death rates are very high. But where is the action happening? In Eastern Europe. It's no accident. Judeo-Bolshevism, that's the enemy, a combined enemy, and that's where the death will occur. Okay, so one last topic for tonight. What happens after the war? to those who engaged in this kind of uh, propaganda work. So the Nuremberg trials and other trials in 46 and 47 were focused on the hierarchy who gave orders to kill. And in Poland, of course, there were all sorts of executions of people who carried out uh, the, the, the genocide in the camps. But what about those who... did not get their hands dirty, but were involved in the, 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 uh, running the mill to produce all this literature, all this stuff, to demonize the Jew and make the Jew into, you know, the the subhuman entity that uh, people came to think of him. So I want to read to you one line. Second. I may not have it. Okay, so the. Okay, here. Klaus Mann, who was related to Thomas Mann, made the following comment It is pitiful and terrifying to think that tens of thousands of German children are poisoned, literally poisoned by this disgusting product of vileness and imbecility. But since it unfortunately exists and is in the hands of the German German children, we should use it too as the strongest imaginable method of propaganda against the Reich of Hitler and Streicher. So this was written actually in 1937-38. Basically what it's saying is the Germans are, are gobbling up this propaganda, believing it, having it transform their attitudes, we should use the same propaganda in the West 
But to say what? This is propaganda. Meaning, look what the Germans are doing. They're preaching a vile, imbecilic ideology, and therefore they are our enemy, and we have to be on guard and to fight maybe a world war against them. So the same literature can either be seen as the gospel truth, MS Leamito, by a gullible, gullible German, or Stusim Gemurim, or Rishus, real evil, by someone who's willing to see it for its evil. And in the West, those who wanted to galvanize support for an anti-German alliance would use some of this to achieve that end. Now, ultimately, was it successful for that purpose? Not, not really, not at all, because Americans didn't want to fight a war against the Germans. Okay, even the British didn't want to fight a war against the Germans until the invasion of Poland, and even then it was a phony war. So the Western intellectuals were not interested in fighting a war until it was absolutely necessary. But there were those who saw the worst effects of the propaganda and said, we need to show this to the West to make sure they are aware of what's happening and are willing to fight it because the fate of the world is at stake. Now, after the war is over, there were those who did engage in propaganda who were punished, sent to years in prison, Streicher was executed, uh, but not everybody suffered their comeuppance. Plenty of people who were engaged in this activity went on to live happy lives in Germany after the war was over. Some of them were quite young when they were engaged in this kind of, kind of activity and lived into the 1970s, 80s, and into the 1990s, uh, oftentimes never apologizing for their involvement in demonizing the Jew. Um, so we only are familiar with the most famous of the names, but there were all sorts of writers and cartoonists uh, who were at the time quite famous, just like you know today's journalists have a certain renown or political cartoonists have a certain renown, and, you know, they're the public, public discourse, public sphere. So you had that back then. Little punishment was suffered by most of them. Was Kurt Waldheim's background known when he goes to what he did? Kurt Waldheim was very good at concealing his background from those who didn't want to know. <laughs> Meaning if you wanted to know, you would have known. But because most people didn't want to know, and he took, you know, nominal efforts to conceal it, so he was able to get away with things for way too long. Okay, we'll stop here. Next week, we're going to move away from Nazi Germany. We're, not going to, we're actually not going to cover the Holocaust in this course. It's not my intention to. We're going to go back to anti-Semitism in Soviet Russia and discuss uh, the, early, the Leninist period and, and early Stalinist periods. Okay, see you next week. Be well.